On that note of decorations, that brings me to my sermon. Because it was brought to uh, our attention, as uh, Leanne and I, from members of our family, not us, uh, from the younger members of our family, that our Christmas decorating needs to, quote, uh, we need to step it up a notch. Now, just to let you know, we're not humbug when it comes to Christmas decorations. Outside of our house, I'll have you know, we have one string of lights that goes over our veranda. Now, one of the members of my family has suggested that that is really, quote, lame. (laughs) I think it looks quite nice. Uh, Inside the house, we have a Christmas tree that's beautifully decorated. There's lights wrapped all around it, which, as you know, they always come seamlessly untangled, right? And the decorations are on the tree, and uh, we've got stockings hung with care. And so, I mean, we have some decorations around the house. But even still, we're told that we need to take it up a notch. So, what did we do? Well, we went, to the, we went to some local stores to look around because we had an idea. You know, we don't want to just be just like everybody else in the street with their flashing lives, the lights and the big blow-up Santa Clauses. We're like, we, we want to make a statement with our day. If we're going to step it up a notch, we're going to step it up a notch biblically. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to go out and we're going to find ourselves the biggest awesomeness manger scene you've ever seen. I mean, surely the goodness, somebody out there, we're going to go find one. It will have like a manger and a Mary and a Joseph and a baby Jesus. If there isn't one, we could borrow one maybe and put a baby there, whatever. And we're, we're going to have, we're going to have a nativity scene because that's, that's the reason for the season. So we went out to the stores to find one. And you know what we found? We found Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We found lots of Santa Clauses. We found you can have a big old Paw Patrol even uh, blow up on your on your lawn. We found Frosty the Snowman, and we found all kinds of lights and configurations. Even one of my neighbors has on the side of their house great big lettering: "Let it snow." Great. I resist the urge to go boo when I go by their house. I don't let it snow. But you know what we didn't find is we didn't find any manger scenes. There's no nativity around. It turns out that if you've got a Visa card, I mean, you can get yourself the most rockin' Christmas display you want to see. But if you want to put Jesus, Mary, and Joseph on your front lawn, you better know somebody who's really handy with woodwork. Because, well, they're just, they're just not out there. Now, maybe you got a spot, and you can tell me after the service where it is, and we'll go on and see if it's in our price range. But we haven't seen it. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining because decorating is not exactly in my wheelhouse, right? But I am observing that the culture gets excited about Christmas, but not in the same way that Christians do, not for the same reasons that Christmas do. Oh, don't, don't get me, don't get me uh, wrong. I mean, I, I, love, I love flashing lights and snowmen that flop around with the, on the power of that blowing fan or whatever. It is. I mean, that's kind of neat. But Christians get excited about Christmas because we celebrate God's goodness. We celebrate God's goodness in sending Jesus into the world. 2,000 years ago, Christ Jesus was born in Bethlehem, raised in Galilee, crucified in Jerusalem to make atonement for my sin and for yours. And then wonderfully on the third day, He arose. We get excited about Christmas because it's a key piece in the great story of God's salvation for you and for me and the observance of christmas is about worshiping god but what we realize almost every year is we've got to be really intentional about making that the main thing 
because so many other things compete for our attention and our interests and even creep in and kind of take over the celebration sometimes. So that's why often when we come to the Christmas season, one of the emphases that we have is on just remembering what is so, what is so special about Christmas. And that's really what I want to do in these next three weeks. Today and the, ne- the following two weeks after that is in preaching from God's Word to just refresh us about the goodness of God and what it is that we really truly are celebrating. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded, you know, Christmas didn't just come out of nowhere. It's really interesting when you read through the Bible, you discover that again and again and again, the coming of Jesus into the world is a promise of God. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that was a promise fulfilled. When you read through the Bible leading up to the birth of Jesus, you find that there's lots of passages that told us it was going to happen because God said it would happen. And what I want to do in in these three weeks here as we ramp up toward Christmas is um, we'll see what happens at the house in terms of decorating. No promises, okay, that we're going to go big this year. I don't know. We've, We've done our best. But what we're going to do here this year, though, is we are going to go big in thinking about the promise of Christmas. Looking at some passages that pointed forward to that which was fulfilled on the first Christmas. God's promises about Jesus coming into the world. Now, two of the texts that I've chosen for our study is is texts that I have studied before. In fact, I've even taught on in the past. And for some, it will be a refresher. For some, it will be new. One of the passages I've chosen, I've never, ever studied in my life. I've read it, but I've never camped out on I've never studied it. I've never wrestled with it. I've never worked it through. So I'm looking forward to that too. Today we're going to start the first promise of Christmas where we're going to start today is for some of you a very familiar text. For others of you, it might be brand new. It's in the book of Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to read about a promise of Christmas the promise of Emmanuel, the promise of God with us. Now, as you're turning there, I got to set the story up for you, okay? Because it's, it's really easy to get confused in this story, not because it's a confusing story, but because there's so many different players in it. Okay, so what I decided to do, I'm going to divide up the room. I find if, if you've got a role in it, it's easier for you to pay attention to what's happening, Okay. So just to get ready here, as you're finding Isaiah chapter 7, anybody have the pew page number, pew Bible page number? What is it, Sam? 571. So if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one close by. Just take it out of the back of the pew in front of you, or just steal it from the person who's opening it now, right? Just say, finders, keepers, or whatever, I don't know. Just find it, 571. And while you're finding it, I'll give you your part, okay? It's a big old Christmas play this morning. You ready for your part? So you people over here, you are the nation of Judah, okay? So you're Judah. The people back there in that section back there, just wave so I know you're... Okay, there you go. You know who you are. You're the nation of Israel. Now, you all once were one big family, but then stuff happened and you split, okay? So you're, you're Israel, you're Judah. Now, over here, over here, we've got you people are, are the nation of Syria, okay? You're, you're Syria, and you people back there, just get you wave so I know you're listening to me, you know your part. You are Assyria. You are the Assyrian Empire. And I chose you because you look big and hulking and menacing this morning. And you're, you're fixing to take over the whole world. All right? So, where's Judah? All right, where's Israel? 
All right, where is Syria? And where is Assyria? Okay, you all know your parts. So here we go, Isaiah chapter 7, and this is what it says. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that's you people, Ahaz is your king. Don't get too excited, he was a terrible person, terrible. So in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, son of uh, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, where's Syria? There you are, it's Rezin, he's your king, he's not very nice either. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, all good, you're up there, all right, came up to Jerusalem, that's you guys, that's, Ju- that's in Judah, to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. Now you're wondering, you're wondering, what do these people have against us? Well, the, what they got against you, the Israelites and the Syrians, they've got this against you. They are afraid of the Assyrians back there. That big, hulking, menacing empire over there, they're afraid of them. And they realize the two of us together have no chance against them. If we're going to have any chance, we need you people to fight with them. But here's the thing. You don't want to fight. And uh, so they say, it's like the old schoolyard bully. You people, you terrible people. Your people are terrible. You say, if you don't fight, we'll come and beat you up. Okay? We're going to beat you up and take your lunch money. And we're going to give you a new king. We're going, to boot out, we're going to boot out Ahaz. And we're going to replace him with somebody else who's going to do what we want. And then we're going to go fight the Assyrians. All right? So that's what's going on here. They're coming up to attack them. But, but what happens is, notice verse 2. When the house of David, that's Judah, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim. Ephraim is Israel. That's just another name for you. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Ever been so scared that you just shake like a leaf? You know, you just you're just terrified, right? Just like somebody for some of you it's just cranberry sauce at, at Christmas. Just makes you tremble. Don't make me eat that or whatever. Or maybe it's a traumatic thing that's coming your way or has just happened and you're just scared and you tremble. Well that's what you're doing. You're you're terrified here. Because we're like, you're we're gonna get beat up. They're going to decimate us, and it's going to be terrible. Now, right about now, you're probably all wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? The answer is nothing, absolutely nothing. Not yet. Just hang in here. So what happens next is this. We've got, uh, uh, we've got this whole situation going down where uh, Judah is scared. Israel and Syria, you're really mad because they won't do what you want. You are fixing to just wipe everybody out. And so, so here's what happens. Um, God sends the prophet Isaiah. I'll just play that part today since I'm preaching. And Isaiah comes, and verse 3, notice what it says. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, that's your king, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, or be calm. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of those two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin, that's you guys, of Syria, and the son of Ramalia. So what's he telling them? Don't be afraid. You don't, you don't need to be worried. You don't need to be, to be a concern. Notice verse 7 what it says. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. So the prophet Isaiah tells Ahaz, listen, God's got this. Okay? Which means you all, you guys should be pretty worried because God's turning against you. He's going to fix you. And the Assyrians, well, you're just sort of waiting in the wings here. You're having a feast and waiting to just destroy everybody. So, 
So you just cool your heels back there. Now, God graciously offered he's going to rescue them. And he said, what's, what's his message to Judah? What's his message to you? Don't worry. Just trust me. I will save you. I will rescue you. Now, the problem that you guys have is that you've got a terrible king because your king doesn't trust God. And he's already working behind the scenes to try to beat his, his immediate enemies. You know what he's actually doing? Did you read the whole, the whole story? You find that he's trying to fix an arrangement back with the Assyrians back there. Hello, good morning, Assyrians. You're still there with me, right? Because he knows you could just, just eat these folks for lunch. So he's got his own plan. I got my own plan. I'm going to do this. But Isaiah says, no, no, trust God. Many times in life we come to crisis, don't we? We come to crisis situations where we got to decide, am I going to trust God with this? Am I going to look to Him and to His power? Or am I going to try to finagle my own way out of this? Well, this is where they were. Now listen, here's what God does. God is so kind. Look at verse, look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign. He says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, I got this. I'm going to rescue you. But you're all still scared, right? So God says, well, listen, no problem. I'll tell you what. Ask me for a sign. Ask me for anything you want. Well, Ahaz, anything you want, in other words, to prove that I'm going to do it. Well, notice what verse 12 says. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, I read it like that because that sounds really biblical, but it's actually unfaithful. Because he's already fixing to try to solve his problems his own ways. I don't want to trust God. God might let me down. Okay? I trust me. Which is what we say sometimes. I trust me. I got this. God, you'll just mess it up somehow. Or you'll let me down. Or you'll disappoint me. Well, what do you think of this plan so far? What do you guys think? What do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs down. Thumbs down, thumbs down. Go like, there you go, Levi. See, even the Assyrians know this is a bad. Even the Assyrians know this is a bad plan. Well, well, he says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. So God says, fine, I'll choose a sign for you. Now, right about now, you're probably all wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, the answer is nothing, nothing, not yet. So hang on. So God says, fine. You don't want to pick a sign? I'll pick a sign for you. Notice verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Curds and honey. I love cheese curds. Those of you who don't like cheese curds, it's a good thing. Curds and honey is symbolic of prosperity. It's going to be all good. You're going to have a big old feast by the time this little one who I'm talking about is old enough to know the difference between good and bad, right and wrong. Verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now right about now, you folks and you folks ought to be like, uh-oh, uh-oh. God's saying, I'm going to deal with these people. And you're going to see that I am God. The name Emmanuel means God with us. What do you think the symbolism of that is? You're going to see that I am with you. I'm with my people. I'm faithful to you. And you can trust me. 
Now, this is quite the situation because, well, you got a situation where God says, fine, you don't want to pick a sign? I'll pick a sign for you. And you will see. You will see that I am God. Now, I think my understanding of, of how the story reads is that indeed that child was born, I think, and I don't know this for sure, for sure, but I think that it was the prophet's own child that was born. If you look over in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, he says, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Isn't that a great name? Sister, I put that one in the baby book. My cousin just had a baby this week. I should tell him, Oh, Alexander's not a good name. Go with this name. Well, it's a, it's a significant name. It means, it, it means the, the, the spoil speeds. It, it means, the, it means pl- plunder will come quickly. So why would you name your child the plunder will come quickly? Because it's a sign. His name is also Emmanuel. God is with us. And because God is with us, he will plunder his people's, his, his people's enemies. Notice verse 4. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, that's you folks over here, Syria, before the boy is, knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, sorry Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. That's you guys. What's he saying here? God's saying, I got this. And if you want to know, mark it down. There's going to be a child who's going to be born. So think for the moment he's given this prophecy, in due course there's going to be a child who's going to be born and by the time that child is old enough to say, Daddy, Mommy! God says, I will have alleviated your problem. And imagine the wonder, imagine the healthy fear that might have come upon some of the people when they saw that unfold. Well, right about now you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? And the answer is, it has something very significant to do with Christmas. You see, when the Apostle Matthew, over 700 years later, was writing the story of the birth of Jesus, when the Apostle Matthew was writing this story and reflecting upon the birth of Christ, his mind went back to this passage of Scripture, this promise. And he realized, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he realized that Isaiah spoke better than he knew. You see, Isaiah addressed God's salvation of Judah, of their temporal, temporary problem of Syria and Israel. And he spoke of God's uh, saving them from their temporal crisis. But he also saw that Isaiah's words not only spoke of a child born in Isaiah's day, but was spoke of the Christ child born in Matthew's day. Not to save us from temporary temporal problems, but to save us from our eternal problem. You see, what Matthew realized is that Isaiah spoke a prophecy that had more than one fulfillment. It had a fulfillment in his day in that real historical context, but it had a greater, more significant fulfillment in Matthew's day in this context of God rescuing the world. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 1, I'll show you what I mean. Matthew chapter 1. Just go ahead later in the Bible to the New Testament. It's the first book in the New Testament. In my Bible, it's like the first page. Uh, we'll look at verse, verse 18 to 23, okay? So Matthew chapter 1, 
just keep going ahead. You'll get to the New Testament. If you start seeing Mark, Luke, John, you went too far. Okay, just go backward. 807. 807. Thanks, Archie, in the Pew Bible. See, Archie knows that pastor just fails at writing down page numbers. I'm sorry. So I want you to see that. Thanks, Archie, for your help. So here's Matthew writing about the birth of Jesus. Notice what he says. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, in other words, they'd never been together sexually, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. How did she get pregnant? It wasn't in the natural way by which all of us came about. It was in a supernatural way, a work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Why did he want to separate from her? Why do you want to call the wedding off? Because he assumed she's been unfaithful to me. But, verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means Savior. Now notice what Matthew says. Here we go. You ready? What did all that whole story have to do with Christmas? It's right here, verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah prophesied about a temporal crisis in his own day, but the words that God gave the prophet in his own day were fulfilled even in a greater way in Matthew's day. Christ was actually born of a virgin. Mary was still a virgin at the time of Christ's birth. Now, now Emmanuel has come, but now Emmanuel is not just a sign that God is with us. Emmanuel is God with us. And God works in those days, in that Christ child, to save his people, not from a temporary problem, but from an eternal problem, the problem of sin. To say it another way, Matthew sees that God's saving act for Judah 700 years prior was a foreshadowing of God's great saving act of the world. Not merely by his power, but now especially by his presence. Personally coming into the world to rescue people from that which will destroy them eternally, our sin. And that's the wonder, that's the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas is a story of Emmanuel, of God with us. Christmas is the amazing story of God with us. God came near, God came here in the person of of Christ. That's that's the story of Christmas. Let me highlight for you three things. We're going to think about who, how, and why. Who is this who came? How did he come? And why? First of all, the who. Who is it who came? Well, it's Christ who came. Christ is the one who came, and he is God with us. That's who he is. When you read the story of Jesus, you discover that not only did he have a supernatural conception, 
but he also is a supernatural person. He is God himself. John the apostle when he wrote about Jesus, he didn't tell the story he didn't tell the story of Jesus birth. He just told the significance of Jesus birth. That this one was was God himself. He called him the word. He says, "In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God." And then he says, "The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us." Well, that's that's Christmas. He's talking about the birth of Jesus, God himself coming into the world. That's who this is. He is indeed God with us. We talk about the Trinity. We mean that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. He is one God who exists forever as three persons. This Christ child is Emmanuel. That means God with us. God came, actually came in this person, which is staggering. Staggering. But as the angel told Mary when... He was filling her in about the news. Nothing will be impossible for God. That's who came. How did he come? He came by virgin birth. Verse 20, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Here's what we, here's what we, we mean. We mean that Christ's conception in his mother Mary was not by normal means. It was not by the instrumentality of a man, but by the working of the Holy Spirit, the working of God. You say, I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I've never seen it happen either. It's happened once in all of human history. But it's a good thing it did. Christ came by virgin birth. What do we mean by that? Let me tell you what... I'll tell you what we don't mean. We don't mean that Christ came into existence in his mother's womb. Though the Bible teaches us that he is God, he is eternal. As one of my mentors has has often said, he said Christ's coming was not an origination, it was a visitation. A visitation of God into the world. So we don't mean that Christ came into existence in the womb, he's always been. But he came by way of the virgin's womb. Secondly, we don't mean that a man became God. So we talk about the virgin birth, the birth of Christ. We don't mean that here is this man who is born and then somehow, some way, God just put Godness on him and he became something. We, we don't mean that. He, he, that. This is who he is. This is who he's always been. We also don't mean that God somehow had sexual relations with Mary. God worked a miracle inside of Mary. But God did not in some strange way have sexual relations with her. We believe as Christians that Christ was conceived supernaturally. It was a virgin conception. Actually, we often talk about the virgin birth. Bill McRae always says, oh, it was a natural birth. It was a virgin conception. Now, I'm saying virgin birth here this morning because that's what we're used to hearing. But it was a natural birth. But it was a virgin conception. It was what God did inside of her. So that's how he came. Why did he come? Well, the text tells us, doesn't it? Matthew 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will what? He will save his people from their sins. This is, this is why Jesus came, to save us from our sins. You and I have a lot of problems in life, don't we? I mean, anybody here today not got any problems? Okay. If you put up your hand, you got a problem. Okay, believe me. Yeah, you're deluded or you got a really big problem coming because there's lots to go around. 
all of us have huge problems. Money problems, health problems, parenting problems, marriage problems, work problems, car problems, right? House problems. I remember a year ago, a year ago right now, we were dealing with roof problems. You know what was wrong with the roof? Every time it rained, water came in. That's not how it's supposed to work. It's a problem. And then you got insurance problems, and on and on and on and on it goes. All of us have problems. But the reality is, is that of all those problems, our biggest problem is this. How will we as sinners ever stand before a holy God? That is a problem. Because all these other problems, one way or another, will go away, or they won't. But eventually there will come a day when all those problems will be passed and the problem will be an eternal problem unless unless there's somebody who can help us and that somebody who can help us is Jesus who came to help us and the reason that he came was so that he would live the sinless life that we did not live and then die a death in our place on the cross and when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible teaches us that there he took upon himself my problem and your problem. So that if you turn to him and trust him, ask him, save me from that problem, that sin, that he will do it. And you have the confidence that he did it because not only did he die for you, but he arose on the third day. And that's, that's the rest of the story of Christmas. That's why we get so excited about it. Because Christ came to save us from our sin. What happened the first Christmas is that God himself, God the Son, took on flesh, entered this sin-sick world to provide a way of escape, a way of rescue for you and for me. That's the story of Christmas. A few years ago, we were at the, uh, the Santa Claus Parade. In, uh, we live up in Brampton, and we're up at the Santa Claus Parade. And it's, it's I mean, as far as parades go, it's pretty terrific. Those who know me well, though, know that the, the only good parade in my book is the one that's canceled. <laughs> I don't like parades. There's a lot of things I won't regale you with all the reasons that I don't like them, but among my top reasons is it's always freezing cold. I don't find most of the stuff that goes by very interesting. And, um, and also, third, there's other things I much prefer to do than to stand for two hours in the cold watching things that aren't that interesting to me. If you ever want to see somebody longing to see Santa, come stand beside me at a Santa Claus parade because you know what it means when Santa comes? It means it's over and we can go home. There you go, bah humbug. Well, at a parade a few years ago, I was really touched by a float that I saw going by. I mean, this was a serious float. If I remember correctly, there was a big tractor trailer pulling it and this huge wagon. And on the huge wagon was like my dream nativity scene for my front yard. There was straw and bales of hay. There was a little crash, a little manger. There was, if I remember right, there was angels, there was wise men, there was shepherds, there was Mary, there was Joseph, they even had a baby. If I remember right, the baby was a real baby, wrapped in cloths in there, and it was, a, I mean, this thing was huge, and they, I think they had a star, and they also, on that, I mean, it was something to see. But also on that float, they had these great big loudspeakers to blast out music. 
And do you know what music was playing? Here's this beautiful scene of Jesus come into the world. I'm thinking of Matthew. I'm thinking of Luke. I'm thinking of Isaiah and God's great promise fulfilled. I'm thinking about this. And here's the speakers. And do you know what song is blasting out of those speakers? Here comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus. Right down Santa Claus Lane. This is why I hate parades. Just the moment I get excited, they take my hopeful spirit and crush it. Look, I know, they're probably just trying to fill the time. It's a long parade and there's Christmas songs. I don't mind the Here Comes Santa Claus song. But the thing is, is that in that moment, I just kind of smiled and thought, there's just some real dissonance going on here. There's like the real meaning of Christmas and then the other thing about Christmas that's not the real thing. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, it would be even better is if we just had some of the songs like we're singing today. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth. Now think about that, peace. We've got this sin problem. But through Jesus, that sin problem is removed so we can have peace with him. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's what Christmas is about. Oh, that's why we love Bethlehem. That's why we love the manger. That's why we love the sheep and the shepherds and the wise men and the star and Mary and Joseph. Because God and sinners reconciled. Jesus came to fix my problem. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. What's the next line? With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus. You get it. Christmas is the amazing story of God with us. God with us for what? To save us. Think about it, Judah. Think about it. You were in a serious crisis. And God said, ask me for a sign. Ask me anything. No, no, we're too religious for signs. I'll give you one. A child will be born. You call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And do you know what happened, Judah? Within about two to three years of that prophecy, Syria was decimated by Assyria. Bye-bye. And the king of Israel was assassinated by one of his own people. And the threat was removed. What does that have to do with Christmas? It's a reminder about God with us. God with us to save us. God with us to save us, not just from our temporary problems, but especially from our eternal problem, our problem of sin. That's the story of Christmas. Christmas is the story, the amazing story, of God with us. It's also, it's also about the promise of God with us. Christmas is not only a story, a promised story, but it is itself a promise of God with us. Namely this, God being with us. It's just striking to me what we're told in Matthew's account. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's an amazing thing when you read the Bible. If you read it through and you watch for it, there's many things that you'll see, but one thing that you will see is that from the very beginning right through to the very end, the heart and passion of God is to be with His people. When you read about the first people that God made, Adam and Eve, you discover something very interesting. That God would come and visit them. In fact, we're told that after they had sinned against God, we're told that in the cool of the day, God came to them. I wonder what that looked like. I don't know. But we see right in the very beginning God's desire to be with his people. When you read through the story of the nation of Israel and Judah who, together, and, and you read and you find that God instructed them to build a tabernacle. That's, you know what I'm talking about? He told them to build this temporary tabernacle. It was a place where God would come and make himself known. The tabernacle, that's the part where your year-long plan to read through the Bible gets derailed because you read about all these dimensions and materials and you're just like, what is this talking about? It's God's instructions for building a tent in which as the people would move throughout the wilderness, God would be there. Why would God want to be there? Because he wants to be with his people. And then later it was put on the heart of David and carried out by his son Solomon to build a temple for God. Why did they want to build a temple? Is it like a trophy? It's like, to God. Is that what it was all about? No, no. It was, it was God's desire to be there with His people, to make His glory present among them. And then you come to Christmas time and you see God being with His people. We call it the incarnation. Jesus coming into the world. God with us then, I'm thinking about, then in the past, seeing the story of God desiring consistently to be with his people. I was thinking of this though, there's God with us, God with us now. Jesus says to you and to me, to his, he said to his disciples, and it applies to you and me, he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you, Jesus says. And then you read further on your Bible and you discover that when you trust in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit dwells in you it's amazing you christian are an amazing person not because of how you do your hair or how you dress although some of you it's amazing but what really makes you amazing is that the spirit of god dwells in you why would god do that because that's what god wants to do he wants you to be with him and you know what the future holds christian Revelation 21 and verse 3. The dwelling place of God is with humanity and He will live with them forever. Amen. <laughs> you see what I mean? So I look at Christmas and I hear this, read this story about Emmanuel and see God with us, God with us to save us. But the story of Christmas is also reminds me of the promise of Christmas. And the promise is God's promise. The hope of Christmas is being with God, knowing Him now and being with Him forever. Christ came to save us from sin so that we can come to God. It's like Hark the Herald Angels sings, right? God and sinners reconciled. It means we're friends. It means what was out of whack is now balanced. I believe being reconciled is an accounting term. 
right? I don't know anything about accounting at all, but I know that. You, when you reconcile the books, it, it's, it, it evens up, it adds up. That, thank you, Mads, for giving me that encouragement. He can tell, he's like, he don't have that on his page. He's just going with that. That's right. And God and sinners reconciled. It means, it means the record is set straight. We are friends with God. We can know God now and forever. That's why Jesus came. Don't you see? Don't you see that the, the, this, this is the prize of the gospel? It's God. It's, it's the death of Jesus on the cross was to get the barrier out of the way so that we can have the thing that God has always wanted with us is that we could be together. It's astounding. What kind of a God is like this who orchestrates things for people like me and you? It's a gracious and good God. That's why I say it's the promise of Christmas. Or you could say the hope of Christmas. The story of Christmas is the story of God with us. God with us to save us. The promise or the hope of Christmas is indeed God with us. God with us now. He's with you. And forever. I wonder this morning, will you allow this to encourage you? Will you let this encourage you, dear Christian? That you are loved by God. And that His heart's desire for you is for you to know Him. For you to be with Him and Him with you. We allow this to comfort you today. To comfort you in the peace of knowing if you are trusting in Jesus, you are never alone he's Emmanuel God with us he's with you he's with you even right now will you allow this to inspire you to inspire you to draw near to him when I talk about drawing near to him I mean meeting him in worship we seek to draw near to Him today. That's why we're singing praises to Him and reading His Word. We want to hear from Him. And many of you will find that you are able, by God's grace, to draw near to Him even when you're not here at church. And hopefully the, the notion of, of God with us will inspire you to keep doing that. What do I mean? I mean by meeting with the Lord, by talking to Him, by reading His Word. I remember years, this is a long time ago now, I was on a mission trip in another country in I went out, or it was a very, very, very hot country, and I went out in the morning, we wanted to get outside in the morning, because it was the coolest time of the day, and so early, early in the morning, and I remember one of the sisters on their team, and I remember going out around the, the back of the building, and there she was, at the back of the building, spending time with God, and I almost felt bad interrupting her, there was a donkey about a stone's throw away, the, the whole land was just taken over by donkeys, and, and missionaries and, uh, and we were there and, and, and she's just sitting there and she turned and looked at me and I was almost kind of half apologetic and all she said is she said I just love I just love to sit and listen for God's voice well you can do that to listen for God's voice open up your word and say Lord speak to me and Lord hear me draw near to him Will you let this inspire you to draw near to him? James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There's one more thing that I want to leave you with as I reflect on this, all that we've seen today. And we've covered a lot of ground. You've done very well. But I want to leave you with this. As I think about the promise of Christmas, one of the themes that we will see again and again is the power of God uh, to guarantee that these things happen the ability of God to bring about all that he promises, 
even when what he promises is, is beyond our imagination. The angel told Mary nothing will be impossible for God. And I reflect on Judah. You remember your problem? You had a big problem. It wasn't the biggest problem that there is, but it was a serious problem. And where Judah had failed was that they failed to trust God with it. And I just reflected on that, I think, and I thought, I'd be remiss if I just didn't bring that back to your attention. Is there an issue, is there a crisis in your life that you need to entrust to God? You say, well, how do I do that? Well, a great starting point is to say, Lord, I need you for this. I can't fix this. I can't change this. I can't make this happen. If it's going to happen, it will only be because you have done something that's beyond my ability to do. I wonder today, do you have a situation like that? For some of you, maybe it's just direction. I don't know what to do next. Some of you are wrestling with big decisions. What do I do? Where do I turn? You need a guide. Will you trust God to guide you? Will you talk to him about that? Will you say, well, Lord, would you lead me? Would you direct my steps? Would you trust him to do that? You say, how do I trust him? You put it in his hands and you commit yourself to not fretting about it because it's in God's hands. You just talk to him about it. You turn your worry into prayer and say, Lord, you know what I'm worried about, so let me just tell you about it. Maybe some of you need encouragement. You're grieving. There ain't anything I'll ever say to you that'll take away your grief. You feel alone. Surrounded by people and yet feel alone. You need comfort. For some of you, Christmas is just a very difficult time of year. Because all the nostalgia around us reminds us of pain in our life. Some of you need provision. There's something you need. You have no idea how it's going to come about. And for some of you, just you need a breakthrough. A breakthrough in the life of a loved one. Maybe a personal situation, a health issue, a mental or emotional crisis. You need a breakthrough. I'm going to pray this morning for you and ask that God with us, Emmanuel, would show himself faithful and that he be so kind as to work in power. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to take a bold step here. Some of you aren't going to like this, but I'm going to ask you to take a bold step this morning because I, I want you to, to put a mark in the sand today that I'm trusting God with my situation, whatever it is. That if you this morning say, I need prayer, I'm not going to ask you what it is, you're not going to have to explain it to anybody, nobody's going to ask you what the issue is, right? But if you need prayer, if you would just stand right where you are, and I'm going to pray. You go ahead, you stand right up, right where you are, and we're going to pray, God, I need, I need a breakthrough. I need Emmanuel. I need God with us for my situation.